is the Gary V audio experience. So, you know, I guess the thing that I can open with is I think a lot about this program and just internships in general and I think that I've been pretty vocal in the past from my content standpoint of like how like I unbelievably don't believe the ROI of this internship is the skill set that you're learning. Though I'm sure for some of you, you know, especially knowing in certain categories, you know, paid media I feel very confident about. All of them I do, but there's clearly places where you will learn skill sets. Um, I'm sure you'll learn plenty on Team Gary, like we're proud of like what we're good at, but this has to be a huge big game of like interpersonal relationships. It is like, you're gonna cozy up with each other because it's easy, you're going through the same shit, right? And it creates a natural bond. This is, it's imperative that you muster up whatever extroverted DNA you have to just say hello in the kitchen. It's just imperative. It just, I can't explain enough to you that there are 13 people that work at this company right now that in 19 years are gonna be the CMOs of the biggest companies in the world. I don't know what to tell you. Like, so, as you can imagine, if I'm even half right, the serendipity of one of those people, you know, becoming somebody you have a relationship with disproportionately changes the course of your professional career. Not to mention the thing I'm proud of, and Luce, I'm sure you're feeling this, like from a, from a culture and pet team and how, how we care about like human stuff, like there's the professional aspect of like me being right about that and you know, you then becoming way more advanced in your career 12 years from now because you've tagged along with Lisa or Johnny or Susan uh, as their careers progressed. Um, there's just also the fact that a shocking amount of people at VaynerMedia end up marrying each other, becoming singular best friends with each other. Like this, We have a very interesting framework when it comes to human dynamics that I think lends itself to a lot of ROI and so not every person is gonna be extroverted or is comfortable to like roll up on somebody cold and say what's up, but I promise you there's very few businesses on earth that it's safer than here to do that and I couldn't push you harder to do it. Elevators, random meetings, you know, going to, you know, obviously at this point you probably feel some comfort level with the person above you or the people that are rabbiing you, asking them to create the serendipity for you or bring you into different rooms just to take a look or, you know, you're in project management but are curious about creative, just being thrown into a meeting, like tasting, tasting things is the number one strategy in your 20s. You've made decisions about what you're about and it's highly likely you're wrong. And when I say wrong, the holy grail of life professionally is to love what you're doing and be good at it. You know, there's a lot of people who love what they do and they're okay at it. There's a lot of people that crush at something but fucking hate it. You know, and the only way you'll know that is if you taste more. I always, I always smile when I'm on this kick because I think about oysters a lot. So like I'm really into them and like, like I've gotten pretty knowledgeable about them like West Coast, East Coast, like that kind of shit. And it's just so funny how many people have decided they don't like oysters without ever having them. And that's how I think about careers. You think you're FinOps, but you're really strategy. You think you're strategy, but you're really account. You think you're project management, but you're really FinOps. And I think about that every day. My job at the top of this whole thing is to put players in a position to succeed. Um, 
the nature of where you are in your life gives you more flexibility to do that for yourself if you have the patience and humility to go through the process. That's my spiel. <laughs> what can I answer? Who's got questions? Like you can go super narrow, you can go very broad. Mine is super narrow. Great. Um, so I'm we from, approved that. <laughs> so I'm from the largest concentration of Arabs and Muslims anywhere outside of the Middle East. That's Dear War, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. And what I think my purpose is, is to put my city on the map. I'm, I, I haven't, so I've learned through talking to people outside of my community that people are aware of it, which was really interesting because when you grow up in that and you're part of that community, you don't really you don't see the value in it. And so as I've gotten older, I guess like... Because it's your norm. It's my norm. And everybody looks like me, talks it's like me. It's your norm. Like me, right. And so I guess like just certain experiences that I went through, my dad was the first Arab Muslim um, administrator of a high school in Dearborn and he got a lot of Islamophobia and like just hatred and like hate speech in the media. And so yes. that made me really passionate about kind of like controlling that narrative. Yes. Um, so we started a podcast, yep. and it's kind of taken, so like it's gotten a lot of statewide attention. And recently, ABC, um, I don't know why I'm so nervous talking about it right now, but ABC Nightline just reached out, and so now we're getting national attention, which is like a dream come true. Like I honestly was crying like all night last night about it, because um, it just happened yesterday. It's awesome. I'm trying to figure out how to continue using the niche that we have, because news just spreads like wildfire in my community, and that's what's helped us get that attention. But also, um, so like using that niche, but not not relying on the niche of the community to get that global attention. Because that's at the end of the day, we want to be the ones telling our stories. Because anyone who's talking about Arabs and Muslims globally right now aren't doing so from our perspective and of course. aren't representing us. Of course. Um, and I kind of want to create a universe where we're the ones holding the mic when we're telling our stories. Well, that's called the internet. You're not going to create it. I didn't create it, right. it's been created. What people don't understand is we're going through cycles. So we, even if you think about it at the highest levels, like there's so much more conversation today about privacy, right? That Nobody talked about privacy eight years ago. Everything was about share everything. This is just pendulum swings. To your point, right now, just like Jews in Europe in the 40s and 50s and African Americans in the 50s, 60s and 70s, like these are just moments in cultural time. Mm-hmm. You, you know, depending on how you see life, you either have the serendipity or the, neg- or the unlock of being who you are during this time when it is your subculture that is on the global pedestal currently mm-hmm. with a lot of people who want to control the narrative in a negative light. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is, you cried out of happiness of the national exposure to Nightline, but it's actually what you're trying to fight against. Yeah. Okay. This is what the funny thing is this whole game is. You know, we are in such a macro framework that you view that as a good thing because you understand the benefits of the national exposure. You have no post-production control. Exactly. Like, you know, I, I, I'm sure some, I, I assume at some level you're aware of me, which means you understand that I'm highly prolific in putting out creative and am known, yet I spend almost no time getting mainstream media attention. So, couple things. Great news. You do have the control. The question is, do you have the patience? You know, one of the things I'm most excited about, if you follow me on Instagram, is I'm getting to show these videos from eight and 10 years ago where I was saying the same shit. 
And so when I pontificate to you guys' patience, it's one thing when I say it now and you hear it and you're like, easy for you to say, except I actually lived it. You can't rely on the local community, not because of anything other than that's just not how the internet works. One person shares one thing on one piece of platform and it gets picked up in Russia and then it's, it, the nature of communication on the internet is not localized. It is inherently viral if it speaks the truth. What you need to do if you have this mission accomplished is worry about your actions, not anybody else's. The biggest problem in our society right now is everybody worries about everybody's actions but their own. on every side of the equation. So what I would tell you to do is what I'm doing for a living, which is I have, all, I have unbelievable social wants of kindness for the world, but I'm not gonna allow my friends to tell me how to do that. My friends tell me I need to be a keyboard warrior on Twitter. I think they're full of shit and trying to look good on social media but don't live their truth. In action, meaning continue to do your podcast, continue to put out content, continue to wear your t-shirt, but not worry about what anybody else is doing with it because when you try to boil the ocean, you don't. When you're gonna put your town on the map as such a young woman, you're gonna lose because putting your town on the map is gonna take you 54 years. Right? So that's, that's how I think about it. And not that Nightline's bad, mm-hmm. but you need to be thoughtful of like what you're set, like the way you're framing it is right. Mm-hmm. The concern I have for you and every other human is lack of patience and ideology over practicality. Thank you. You're welcome. Gary, what are the most important things you look for in a company before investing, particularly startups? And- I was 31 when I started investing. I didn't know I was investing. I just took money out of my bank and gave it to Mark Zuckerberg's parents. Like literally, like that's the truth. Like I didn't think about my Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter investment as I was an investor. I thought of them as I'm in this point in my life, I'm 100% positive these three platforms are gonna be big and if I put money in now, it's likely that it'll be worth more money later. I didn't even understand IPO. bro. Uh, If I knew that you could carry other people's money, what carrying means is I take a million dollars from somebody who has it and I invest in the Twitter and I get 20% of the upside after they get their million dollars back, I'd probably own the Jets today. That's how positive I was about those three platforms, but I didn't even have any education of what investing was, so I only wrote my own personal money. Instead of going to all my rich wine customers, I would have probably raised 25 million. I would have got 20%. If I got $5 million, and invested into Facebook and got 20% of the carry, it would have been $100 million. So like, I, I, so that's one context point. Today, today, the answer to that question is 100% based on the person. I am no longer interested in an idea. I don't wanna hate the idea, I don't wanna hate it. But I now, after 10 years, see the patterns, which is, this is singularly, for me, a game about people. Yeah, I have a follow up. So- particularly now with, you said this on your Instagram account, talking about like the uh, like the weed bubble similar to the crypto bubble 
Sarah, how like what players do you think will win through that? Like what the she and he that I think knows what the fuck is going on yeah. and knows how to adjust and waits a decade to win versus the 99.999% of people yeah. who are infusing CBD into products and thinking that's some magic fucking pill. Hey Gary, I have a CBD cocoa. I'm like, cool. They think the CBD part is the magic pill. They don't realize it's the commodity. Everybody's doing that right now. Everything, everything is CBD infused. So will you go out and invest more in that now? Less. Less, because now this is the time of danger because everyone's in it. So you have to be more thoughtful. This is the great era of jokers in crypto and, and cannabis. Yet, seven of them are the Meg Whitmans. Seven of them are the Mark Zuckerbergs. The problem is there's seven million to get through. Four years ago, there was 800,000 of them and the same seven were there. Now there's seven million of them and the same seven are there. That's the problem, got it? Gold rushes are dangerous. Most people lost money. Obviously the culture here is so amazing and different from a lot of companies. How have you noticed it change as Vanity has grown from two to 800 people in the past 10 years? There's more cynicism from people because they're less close to me. So it's easier to control when you become even smaller. You'll appreciate this. I don't even think of it as control. I think of it as if 59 people are in the company and I'm around them all the time, they have a better read of what I'm up to. There's a very big difference about between the way Team Gary Vee feels about me versus LIC producers, not because they're on Team Gary Vee, it's that because they're closer. Yeah. Dustin thought didn't like me the first three months. He's not here. But like <laughs> Dustin didn't like me, but he like there's a conversation we had because he by nature is cynical. There was a couple people on Team Gary Vee that were ready to leave Team Gary Vee that were up to their own agenda, so they were burning bridges, and he was affected by that. And and if he was a Vayner employee, he would stay that way because what Dustin had by being around is just the luxury to see it play out. Mm-hmm. And different from being close to you, how would you say it's changed as you've grown more followers and like gotten a bigger image in the media? My intuition on that is that there's a small percentage of people in this company who think I don't care about the company or I'm not involved because they think I'm spending all my time being Gary Vee. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the only case, and, that, and that's probably three to 12% of the people within their first year to two years. Or there's just inherent in people who just like the idea of fighting against the company. You know, that's just the way life is and that's okay. I, I deploy enormous amounts of empathy against all of this. Um, but it's changed because everything changes. It's like anything else. But I think the spirit and the intent is 100% intact, which is why even at 850, it feels a lot better than other places mm-hmm. that are even 50. It's not, people are like, oh, people are so basic, they think size destroys it. Intent destroys it. There's plenty of 38 person companies that suck shit. Yeah. Because she or he is about their money, not about their employees. Not super complicated. Yeah. So just natural stuff that I'm super signed up for. You know, I don't like being judged negatively that way by my own team, but I'm empathetic. You know, you try to do open door policy, try to do things like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the realities are there's collateral damage in anything that is growing. As long as I put my he- head on my pillow every night, it makes everything pretty easy. And I look at data. 
How much voluntary exiting do we have here? How many people want to come back after they leave? What, you know, I don't look at fake data like Glassdoor. I look at real data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was watching um, this video that you did last year, yesterday, and you said like whenever there's a like a sheet and someone's leaving, like you always read all those papers and like figure out why they left and like it's both extremes. To this day, there's not a single person that gets fired from VaynerMedia without me personally approving it. That's all you need to know about this company. Like I'm so petrified to do the wrong thing that I need, that I have that in place. Think about that. Like, and just to give you guys context, which you wouldn't maybe know, is I give uncomfortable amounts of autonomy to leadership in this company. Yet, to be fired here, it has to get signed off by me. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's intense. Yeah, and like, and we're wrong sometimes. Um, But we don't value money enough that it makes us right more often than wrong because we're willing to spend the extra three, six, nine, 12 weeks to really look under the hood to make sure we feel good about the decision. Um, so you're clearly like really bullish on social media. Yes. Um, so and like I've we, heard. Yeah, we've all kind of grown up with social media and such. Makes sense. And I think we're recognizing like the upside, but also recognizing the downsides. Even these companies are talking about things like they know the technology is addictive. We know the technology is addictive. All that, and you see a lot of people that are like kind of like wanting to detox sometimes. So how do you think like what does the evolution of social media look like in that regard? Like companies understanding that maybe people don't want to always be connected and people not always want to be connected, but understanding that like social media is not going away. Like what does that whole evolution look like? Accountability. If you even for a second think it's a good idea for Apple and Google and Facebook to help you be less addicted, you are on the path of losing. You don't like Instagram? Delete it. The second we allow ourselves to let the machines help us help ourselves is the second you become more vulnerable. I believe that. Could you explain that more? Sure. Like, you want Apple to limit the amount of time you're on Instagram for you? Like, you think that's the way, that's, that's what, you, you want that? Mazel tov, take it. But like, I promise you, then there's gonna be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You're either account, social media is exposing us, it's not changing us. There is no social media, brother. They're empty fucking pipes. Social media doesn't make you mean. Social media doesn't make you insecure. You're insecure, you're mean. We're getting exposed, not changed. We're addicted to, we're addicted to human interaction. The reason the world exists in a world where we've had atomic bombs for 70 years is we like each other. We're not addicted to social media. We are interactive creatures. You're addicted to people. Cool, you don't wanna be on Instagram? Go read Vogue. Knock yourself out. This is a, this is a very fun thing for me to watch evolve. Um, people don't like being held accountable. So, um, a lot of things, the way that these platforms claim they're addictive is the way a lot of things are addictive. Are we gonna ban pretty people? Are we gonna limit our time to watching comedy? 
are we gonna limit the time we listen to music? This is a really, this is the demonization, bless you, this is the demonization of technology. Let me give you a really good piece of advice. Go read the articles around the kaleidoscope. I'm being dead serious. Go Google the early articles around the kaleidoscope. You'll think you're reading about Instagram. History's got all the answers. I failed, I, I could not be in this program because I failed all my classes, but the one class I was good at was history and it is the continuous framework of how I think about a lot of this stuff. Literally the articles of the kaleidoscope are making the same arguments now. So if you have FOMO, it's because you have levels of insecurity that are raging, which has a lot more to do with the way you were parented and where you grew up and the natural DNA you were given, not Snapchat. So how do I think it's gonna play out? In its worst, our government gets disproportionately involved, which will be fine. I could care less. Just so everybody knows, I care about attention, not social media. So if we all stop doing social media, I'm gonna figure out where your eyes and ears are going. You're gonna go somewhere. We're not locking ourselves up in a room. So I don't give a fuck. Google and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and LinkedIn can disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow and I'd probably be the single happiest person because my most comfortable state is reacting quickly to where attention goes. Um, I just feel bad for any human being that thinks that's gonna help them. Because they're gonna find something else to complain about or to be controlled by. This is an internal framework conversation not an external technology conversation. What slash who are you most often consuming right now? Just from like a free time standpoint. The people that leave comments in my content. I consume nothing. I literally have no idea what's going on other than if it serendipitously hits my radar through my own community. I'm just consuming how people are reacting to what I'm focused on. And I think that's been a huge strength of mine. It, you know, you get, for example, because I did consume a lot of Richard Pryor and Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy as a kid, I completely believe the way I give keynote speeches has an underlining tone of a comedy routine more than just like the classic keynote, which is why I think it's worked for me because there's a level of entertainment that comes along when I give keynotes. So I've become a character, I, I, I've, been, I've been affected by them in the way that I act. I think the reason my voice is resonating is I'm not affected by anybody else right now. I'm only affected by the way people are reacting to me, which allows me to continue to build in the purity of human truths without blending and trying to be like. Um, what is your You'll appreciate this real quick on that front. Just to jump in, I'll let you finish. I give zero thoughts to controlling my public image. Zero. I mean, they doc, my team's in here. I don't even look at what they're making. The way I control my public image is by living my truth and letting the chips fall. It's the most liberating thing of all time. I don't think about it at all. Keep going. Health, health, health keeps me up at night. The health and well-being of the 12 people that I'm 
closest related to or love the most as a friend scares the fuck out of me. Like way more than it scares most people. I think about it all the time. Because I don't care about the work enough. Like it's what my passion is, but like if, like if a core 12 person in my life is terminally ill or passes away, it will shut me down. So that keeps me up. Professionally, I'm not kept up. I'm capable, I'm talented. Business is tricky because we haven't, we don't treat business the way we treat music artists and athletes, but I think it's much more similar to that than it is other things. So like once you know you're a good athlete, like you may not win every game, but like LeBron's not confused that he's bad. You know, he doesn't think like tomorrow he's not gonna be able to play. He may not win every game, and I genuinely feel like I'm that. Like I'm not gonna miraculously tomorrow not be what I've been for the last 38 years of my life, which is a disproportionately successful business human, right? So I'm good. Yeah. Hi, Gary. I'm on the phone from the LA office. I am so sorry I didn't get to say hello. I didn't know. I completely blame Alex Klein. (laughs) (laughs) Who is it? Please go around. I don't know how many are on the phone, but please say hello. Go ahead. Okay, so I'm Lindsay. I'm from the LA office. And I'm actually from Atlanta, Georgia, but I'm on the paid media. Awesome, Linz. Go ahead. So I just had a follow-up question when you were talking about social media earlier and exposing people. What's your opinion on Instagram testing, taking away likes in Canada and stuff like that? I hope they do it. <laughs> How do you will impact social media? Uh, it will change a lot of people's creative because they won't pander to likes. They'll start putting out more of what they want to actually put out. It will make... Uh, uh, a very high percentage of people lose leverage because their social equity is predicated on their following count. Uh, and I think it would lead to good behavior. So specifically, how do you think it will affect your social media presence? Zero. Zero? Zero. I'm not predicated on my following count or my blue check or how many likes a post gets. I'm predicated on the message I'm delivering in the content. You're welcome. I kind of have a follow-up comment on that. I was reading an article about TikTok, and basically the article said people on TikTok, it's like their likes are like their value. Their likes are their money. Their likes are their like. The it's their currency. It's their currency. Yes. Exactly what it said. And I sat back and thought, and I was like, what kind of world would we live in if that's the only thing that like we value? Like we sit home and we go, oh hey, like that's how many likes I got it, today. It would be the world we all have always lived in. Let me tell you what likes were in 1984. Your popularity rank in your high school. This is human behavior. And then another question is, do you think that your feelings in your relationship with your family reflects in your work and your business life and the matters in it? Yes, 100%. I think that this company is a complete and utter reflection of the way I was parented and the circumstances in which I was parented, 100%. I think that this company is optimistically practical. So, um, and that's uniquely what I can bring to the table in this company. So this company is extremely young and coastal, which means it's unbelievably social liberal, which is incredible because I am as well, but that also leads to vulnerability. Um, and so. 
my practicality and immigrant upbringing and like merit-based infrastructure helps us a lot when the most senior leaders do things that are currently popular but are unbelievably uh, uh, scary to me of what that could lead to a month later. I mean, like, I mean, Slack at VaynerMedia is like dark Reddit. Like, you know, like there's a lot of good, but there's plenty of dark. And like, that's just the nature of what happens, especially when what's happening outside the four walls of VaynerMedia is happening in our society, which is activating people in a completely different way than a decade ago or two decades ago or two decades from today. And so, yes, I feel like I'm very fortunate to be the human that I am during this time because I think I have practical optimism. I'm a Jets fan because in August of 1982, when I moved to Edison, New Jersey, what, eight, what 1982 kids did was you went outside and randomly walked around. And in one of those walking arounds, I found three kids throwing a Nerf football and a kid by the name of Eric Godfrey looked me dead in the face and said, who do you like? I don't recall what happens next, but I remember who do you like in football. But basically, he's like, well, we're Jet fans, so you're a Jets fan. And that September, I started watching the Jets, and I haven't stopped. <laughs> that is it. That is the story. Um, I'm curious what you said earlier about tasting, tasting okay. things in your 20s. Yes. Um, where would you say is, is the best spot to do that? Is it at a company? Is it in college? Is it... It's definitely not in college. Taking a trip to Argentina or something, or like it's anything but college. Only because not not and not to like overly razz on college, but it's a fake environment. There's nothing about college that has anything to do with your professional career. Um, so not college, but then anything in the real world, you know, in a company that has flexibility to let you do a lot of different disciplines. Something I'm proud of that we have here. I'm sure others do. Um, I, I believe. I believe the framework of the world is backwards. I think that everybody in their 20s should be at their highest risk behavior. And I think most of you are feeling pressure on the other side to start being more responsible in real life. That we've created this narrative that you like fuck around for four years in college and it's your last great thing. And then in May of when you're 22, you now need to get serious and everything becomes super practical, both as a macro thing a level of underlining pressure we feel from our parents, an underlining pressure we feel from ourselves to prove that we are what we think we are. And I think that unfortunately, I'm trying to figure out through my communication and hopefully that influences others to start a debate. I think the right model is actually that 20 to 30 should be ludicrous. Should be all the most extreme versions of like four different countries, 19 different jobs. Um, that you have That you have the ability still at that point to have the humility to live shitty, which then gives you the luxury to be able to taste. When you're 36, you now have created overhead in family, home, car, loans, mortgages, and other things that give you less flexibility. When you're 22, it still seems feasible to live with five other girls in a two-bedroom apartment where everyone's trying to figure out their world. And then college, you, you don't like college be purely because of I don't the value like, prop? I don't like college for the value prop for a big percentage of people. I think college works for, somebody left a comment yesterday on my Instagram that like, Gary D, you convinced me to stay in school. And I was pumped. 
And, and I was like, yes, this kid is hearing me. I'm not shitting on college. I'm cheerleading for self-awareness. There's no such thing as one thing works for everyone. The, and one of the scariest things in, in American society, one of the scariest things is parents putting pressure on kids to go to school to make the parent feel good and making the kid take on debt for that when the kid doesn't feel like they want to do that and then they come out the other side and they literally spend the next 15 years trying to reconcile that debt. That's why you have a lot of unhappy people. And then what that means is then they go, yay, I'm gonna vote for the person that's gonna wipe out college debt, right? Because that's your short-term issue, just like other people vote to the Republican side on their short-term issue, which then leads to accountability issues, which leads into people like, Google needs to take care of me. This is how the machines are gonna win. You understand that, right? I don't want the machines to win. I want all of you to think every single thing is your fault without judging yourself into depression. Which, you know, everything's your fault, that's a great thing, means you're in control, let's go. Um, so this actually is like a good segue uh, to like this question I have. So for someone like myself who like wants to go into entrepreneurship ultimately and like start a business, like I'm interested in several areas like media, emerging tech, all that, but I don't really know like which specific thing I want to do, would you say to like start at like some company first and then kind of figure it out from there or just like kind of go? Down? How do you learn? I, I think mostly by doing. So then don't go to a company. But I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, I guess pressure in a sense to like, you know, go. You can stop this sentence right there. You know that you learn that way, but you're going to do something else based on somebody else. That's, 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 that's what everyone's doing, bro. And so everyone's sitting around and trying to figure out why everybody, every, all these young people are so upset. It's because of all this. Because they were overcoddled by a generation of overcoddling parents. And they don't know how to fucking do their own shit. And I think they can do tons of shit and believe you can do so much as long as you tune out. Are you in a place where you're comfortable to do what I lived through? This is, I mean, I lived it. I lived the world where, from, you know, now I'm me, but 26-year-old me was ringing up my friends from high school at my dad's liquor store when they rolled in with their BMW because they went to a good school and started working at Goldman Sachs and could afford one, or not really, but they wanted to look like they could, and they were buying a case of Moet Chandon and I was ringing it up for them, and this is real stories now, and carrying the case to their car and putting it in their trunk. I walked in feeling fulfilled because I was happy I made a sale. They were leaving there feeling unbelievable because Gary's bringing out my case. The problem was that was just when we were 26. Now that we're 43, it's real, real, real different. I just had the internal strength to deal with that scenario. 99% of you aren't. How fucking great do you feel at the end of the day? 
<laughs> really fucking great. Mainly though, but I felt really, really great at 24 when I schlepped that case into my friend's car. Because I love process, not, not winning. I actually like losing more than winning, I've come to learn. This is something I'm really trying to reconcile. I actually like losing more than winning. It speaks volumes to why I'm obsessed with the Jets and Knicks and completely have abandoned the, the Yankees and the Rangers after they won a championship. I like losing more. Micro losing or macro losing? Micro losing, but, micro, but everything is micro losing besides death or bankruptcy. Like being the underdog? <clears throat> yep. Like I just don't give a fuck what you guys think. And that goes from you all the way up to my parents. That by recognizing that you guys don't have the, nor my parents has all the context. Nobody fully knows you. Uh, it's actually through empathy. At what I, age was that like? Early. <sighs> early. Like I can't believe how I, now, understanding a little bit more, back to like being in your own cocoon, I don't, I can't believe the mentality I brought into high school. Mm-hmm. Like to navigate high school the way I did, which is like completely and utterly not affected by peer pressure in hindsight, is wild to me. That takes a level of like self-confidence at such an early age that I think, I just understand so much more of what I am now really on that window. Cause that is such a tough spot. And um, that. Do you attribute that to your parents and the work from a young age? Or yes. The DNA my parents gave me, clearly the way that my mother raised me, um, having to earn my keep, and then just like DNA, man. Just like that voice that we all have. Like, I just always felt that I was better. And here's where it gets really good. But if the world showed me I wasn't, like I remember going through, this is actually interesting, I don't know if I've ever shared this. I remember vividly going through the ages of like seven to like 16, being stunned anytime I didn't win in something. Like, shocked. <laughs> like, just could not believe that Rick was better at tennis, or John just beat me in one-on-one, or I wasn't the fastest in my class, or like, just shocked. And, you know, and I've been thinking about that lately because I just, it sparked in me a few months ago. I'm like, wait a minute, that was weird. What was that? Because I, it, you know, I just kind of remembered it. Like, shocked. I remember actually what seemed in my mind as a disappointing thing at the time, and now I look at it as a great thing. I remember thinking somewhere around 13, 14, 15 that I lost my expectation of always winning in everything, every time. And I remember thinking like that wasn't good, but in hindsight, I think it was great because the reality is I got into this place of complete and utter, utter confidence, but being able to not come up with excuses if it didn't work out. Like watching people like lose and then blame the sun. Like literally, like what? Like I overheard it a couple of weeks ago somewhere. Uh, I was walking like, like at, oh, I'm on vacation. I overheard it. Like this kid lost to his cousin. It, looked, it seemed to me they didn't look like brothers, uh, and he was blaming the sun. And it took everything I had to not like roll in and be like, bro, I love you, but like <laughs> you need to realize like the sun was there for him too. And I think I think a lot about that accountability, like if you're coming up with excuses, like being super confident 
filled with excuses when it doesn't work out is called delusion. So I feel great because I love process. What kind of impact do you want to leave on the world? Obviously a successful business is one of them, but it seems to me that you talk a lot about like personal care and empathy, which is really refreshing and nice to hear. I want to know what your impact and like what you want to leave before you go. I want to be the greatest entrepreneur of all time by reframing what an entrepreneur is. Um, and so I probably have like a very ideological point of view on, you know, it was crazy when you just said, obviously leave a successful business. And it was funny like how my chemicals reacted, which was like, not really. You know, like I'm into it, I love it, it's my sport. It's also why I garage sale, right? Like, I just like the game. So sure, but if you read my DMs for a day, you'd understand that I'm way more evolved into that. And I think people are sensing it to your point. And uh, I just wanna leave a positive impact. Look, I think I have a charisma and communication level that allows me to have impact, right? And I think when one is gifted with that extreme of that capability, they can go one of two ways. And uh, I'd like to go the way that history tends to look positive on, not negative. I'm gonna leave a lot of money on the table and a lot of personal gain for really nice reputation when I can't even taste it, because I'll be gone. I want two days of trending on Twitter, not two hours. <laughs> Do you have like a definition of success for you? Or, I do. Because uh, I know that I feel like um, your businesses and everything's always like growing and moving forward and looking into the future and like what's the next thing. So is there ever like, or is, is it like a step on kind of like how do you My definition of success for me is to be able to do what I want to do at all times always and be happy about it. Having freedom is everything. Has that changed over? No, but I don't think I was, I didn't realize what was going on in my youth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, no, I wasn't, you know, it's hard for you to really know yourself completely at this point. You'll look back and realize it was all the same shit, but articulating it takes time within yourself and also just takes time of you actually executing on it. Back to like the sub context of what we're talking about here, one of my biggest problems right now, like everybody who's trying to make positive impact is they're doing semantical work, not actual work. Right? They're jockeying for their personal reputation by what they wear or what hashtag they use, not necessarily what they're actually doing. And if they actually ask them, once they actually embrace the fact that they're being selfish, then they can become selfless. Mm -hmm. When they're posturing to selflessness and disguising it, their true selfishness, they're losing because that will play out. And that is the vulnerability of being overwoke. <laughs> you know? That's the vulnerability. And, 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 these are, and the reason I like saying them out loud is because people aren't saying that part out loud, which then doesn't allow a lot of this good to actually be effective. And then it starts getting into delusion. There's so much I love about you know, making the world a better place, but it has to be practical. Like, like, I would be thrilled if the government decides to wipe out all these college debts but let me promise you what the reaction to that's gonna be. Even worse behavior. Watch 
what the 27-year-old does when you take 230 off her bill. Like watch what she then does for the next 20 years. It's not gonna be as good as people think. Recognizing that there's always gonna be some level of like whichever one you do. Like you have to know yourself. So what, what I know about myself is I don't have micro regret behavior. Maybe when I'm much, much, much older it will kick in because I'll run out of time. But having time in front of me doesn't allow me to dwell or regret. Other people I'm watching here are 24 and are regretting shit already. I'm like, okay, I need to help them think about this because that's a bad framework because if you regret, if you're that insecure, if, you're that, if that's your perspective, then you have no right answer. Because if you go and travel and you're 34, you're, whatever you are financially or professionally at 34, you're like, motherfucker, I should have worked more. Fuck Argentina. If, if, you know, or if you do the other thing and you work your face off, you'll be like, fuck. I ended up just like fucking Gary. All my friends had fun and yeah, I got a million bucks in the bank but I'm sad because I wish I went to the fucking beach more often. So, so either you're in that framework or you're not which is, which is a great way to put a bow on everything I've been telling you. You want to blame other people, the government, Google, knock yourself out. You will go to the grave blaming somebody for something. You want to understand that even if you're in the worst circumstances, the hood, drug parents, super triple minority, transvestite, you know, trans, you know, minority brown, like everything quote unquote stacked against you, but the reality of actually an internet-centric world means you have a lot more control than our grandparents did, it becomes an interesting game. You have full control of your podcast. Let me tell you about your podcast in 1984. It's not getting put on the air. This internet thing is going to, this is going to be a circle, guys. This internet thing was so fucking amazing in 2000, 2010. Now, we're saying this thing is bad. Woe is me. Too much power. It's bad. Right? The extreme left is saying, like, we're not in, we need to limit the, the extreme right's like, you're censoring conservative. This is, and guess what? When you guys are 42, we're going to be back to this thing is great. This is what got us out of the dark era because the good came. I'm just right down the middle. Not giving a fuck about anybody else's opinions or signals or noise because I know it's selfish in nature. I'm doing my thing, trying to be good with this framework of guilt and gratitude of my circumstances that put me in my position. I'm trying to give back more than I take as a legacy, 5149 and some of the other shit I talk about. And if I fuck up, that'll be just fine too because you are all going to fuck up too. That's what I'm going to do. Thanks for your time. Yes, no, no, definitely since you didn't ask one, go. It's okay. So you were talking about losing earlier and I personally like macro, like one of my, even micro, like even if you'll like help me in the long run, what do you have to say to someone who hates losing to like come to terms with it? You need to figure out who you're most upset about losing in front of. What if it's literally everybody? <laughs> That's great. Then you need to start really thinking about creating behavior to make yourself lose more. You basically are in the same place that a slow maturing 
11 year old is who hasn't started swimming yet? The only answer to your question is to jump in the pool. If you were like my younger sister, I would tell you that everything you should do for the next five years are things that you're likely gonna lose at until it becomes so numb that it changes your relationship with losing. Losing, hating to lose in the way that you're describing it is completely predicated on not being able to deal with other people's judgment. And that is a tough spot to be in. You know? You gotta reconcile that with, I'm probably the most competitive person I've ever met. Or just in the mix with the other people. So I'm trying to win. I don't want to lose, but I respect the game enough to accept it and I weirdly get good tingles from it because it excites me to try again. You know? Like is, is that how your relationship is with it or what's your relationship with it? doing, of course, but why? Well that, it goes to the other word I love so much. You lack patience. And, or, and, or, the biggest thing that kids struggle with contextualizing time. If there was, out of all the things we talked about, if on my parting shot I can inject something into you, it would be one thing. For you to feel the way I feel right now about 43 years old. When I was 22 and I started working at my dad's liquor store, my cousin Bobby worked there, who's my dad's first cousin but my grandma was older than the Punchline was he was only eight years older than me because it was like kind of that like skip generation kind of things with like older siblings. He was 30. When I walked in that first day at 22, and I'd worked with him since I was 14, but like when it became real, I'm like, I'm a professional now. And we just spent a lot of time together, best friends, right? Like 15 hours a day in a liquor store together, small ones, so like every day, right? I thought he was so fucking old. <laughs> I thought that motherfucker was so old. So sitting in this room right now, knowing how you feel about 43 at 20, 21, 22, it makes me laugh. Because like, I could literally, like, how old are you? Great. My mom was 41 when I was 21. I'm 43. Like, like, if I was from the old country, there's a great chance that I could be your dad. You know, like I come into here and I'm like, I'm older brother, right? But like, it's like now getting into like dad territory, right? (laughs) Meanwhile, I feel like I'm exactly one of you guys on some real shit. Mentally? Yes. I feel way more similar to you than I do to a 43-year-old other person. <laughs> you know, like, like, like way more. I probably know way more about stuff that's cool than you guys do by the nature of my business, not because I actually live it. But the punchline is, if you knew that, if you actually knew how much more time you had, if you could context how uncomfortably young you are, if you guys could understand that you're part of a generation that means you're gonna live four, four, four more full lives. From the day you were fucking born to right now, 
you're gonna do that four more times. If you can contextualize that, if you can contextualize the blessings you guys have, that you don't live in a culture where you're expected to be married at 25 and have a kid at 26, that there's normalcy created around the fact you can go and have a 20 year career and then start your family if you chemically or intuitively or culturally or internally want that for yourself. We are being so confused by the macro media landscape and the political landscape, it has never been a better time to be alive in the history of the world. For everybody who's being persecuted for looking different, I remind a lot of my friends to go talk to their great grandparents and ask them how it went for them. This is why, like, this is why we need to spend more time with elderly people that are not our relatives. You want equal pay and like this and that? Cool. Go talk to a 63-year-old professional woman. Like shit's good. And the shit a lot's bad. You get to choose how you look at it. Not me. Not them. You. And that's how this shit plays out. You just haven't contextualized time. I'm yelling at you to waste eight years just to begin the process of trying to do something. I'm telling you, and I know I'm right, like in my fucking soul, that you should waste the way you see the world eight years on resources and time just to start the thesis of what you should do with your life. And a bunch of you debated heavily if this was the right internship versus a different one and like what will happen and this and that. None of it fucking matters. The second you understand that you'll never, let me tell you this, and I know I'm running late but we'll be fine. If you actually knew that you would never find out what the alternative was, shit would get real good. You know how easy it is for me to make decisions? Super easy. Do you know why? I wouldn't know what the alternative was. Because you, it's not practical. I don't have time to dwell on the fact that I passed on Uber twice, which was my best friend of any investment that I made. Every person I invested in was not as close to me as Travis was, and for some miraculous cosmic reason, I passed on Uber twice, which made up, means that my $50,000 investment, which would have been worth $700 million today, didn't happen. And when I tell you I don't think about it at all, here's why. I'm smart and thoughtful enough of knowing how life works. Had I made that investment, everything would be different. Maybe I'd be going to India to give a keynote about that investment because I would have much bigger profile, much different resources, and maybe in that private flight, maybe that flight would have gone down and I would be dead. It's the biggest weakness everyone has. They're trying to spend time on something that doesn't exist. There is no time machine. Sorry you picked the wrong school, or sorority, or girlfriend, or major. Sorry. What are we gonna do, what, we're gonna build a time machine here? That's your practical optimism? Sure is. Because it's both optimistic and way more practical. That's life, as I see it at this moment. And it's real, you know? I really want this for you guys. Happiness needs to be the ambition.
and you're way more in control than you think. You just have to stop paying attention to others. And unfortunately the framework is to pay attention to others, which is how this is all happening.